0: thanks for pressing play this is christopher lockhead follow your different and as the name suggests this podcast or some people call us an oddcast is for people who value real different conversations conversations about the people and the companies that have the courage to uh go down the road less traveled and be unique and on this episode boy do we have somebody unique we continue our run of extraordinary authors and entrepreneurs, frankly, because on this episode we have combat vet, US Marine, speaker, entrepreneur, best selling author, and nonprofit founder Akshay Nanavati. And um, this will give you a sense for who uh, Akshay is. His best selling book is called Firvana, and it was endorsed by the Dalai Lama himself. And the Dalai Lama said, quote, Firvana inspires us to look beyond our own agonizing experiences and find the positive side of our lives. Um, I've had the pleasure of getting to know Akshay a little bit. And um, here's what I can tell you. This guy's a lot of amazing things. He's an extreme athlete who has explored some of the most hostile environments on planet Earth doing crazy athletic things. He's a man who is an immigrant to this uh, to the country of the United States, this country, the country I'm in (laughs) and love. Uh, He enlisted in the U.S. Marines after 9-11 and uh, served this country uh, very powerfully. Since then, he's overcome PTSD, horrible thoughts of suicide, survivor anxiety, alcoholism and a whole bunch more. This is a stunning conversation. We talk about how overcoming extraordinary challenges is actually the key to a successful life. Why Akshay thinks we should all pick worthy struggles. He uh, shares with us the power of what he calls earning your life and uh, why he thinks the most important skill is having a positive relationship to suffering. Um, Also, um, there's a ton here. I'd ask you to listen carefully for his thoughts on traditional ideas of human and self-development like folly or passion and things along those lines. He's got a very different and unique take. Uh, No matter where you are in life, uh, there's a lot to learn here from Akshay. Go to Lockhead.com to check out the show notes to learn more about his book, his speaking, and his other athletic exploits. Now, As you may know, I've been an advisor or a board director to over 50 venture-backed Silicon Valley companies. And here's what I know. When you sit down for a board meeting, one of the most critical things that you discuss are the financials. And your financials need to be legendary. And that's where my friends at NetSuite from Oracle come in. Because NetSuite gives you a complete picture of your business from your financials to your inventory, to human resources, to customers, uh, etc. NetSuite is really the platform for building a high growth business. So if you want to take your company from 2 million to 10 million, or 10 million to hundreds of millions, or maybe even go public one day, NetSuite is the platform for growth because it gives you the visibility and control that you need to make good decisions and to grow with confidence. As a matter of fact, NetSuite customers grow faster than the typical S&P 500 company. And NetSuite is trusted by more than 19,000 organizations. To schedule your free product tour right now and to receive your free gift, the seven key strategies to grow your profits, visit netsuite.com different. That's netsuite.com different. Because with NetSuite, business grows here. I also want to share with you that it's very clear we're living in the data age. And uh, if by chance you happen to read my most recent article with the most legendary Eddie Yoon for the Harvard Business Review, we talk about the power of building a data flywheel around your customers and your markets to become a category queen business. My friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Uh, They bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. And that's why Splunk has become one of the fastest growing enterprise software companies in history. To learn how to turn data into doing today, visit splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to the number two, everything, splunk.com slash D2E. Now, hey ho, let's go. So actually, I'm uh, stoked to get this opportunity to hang out with you. Likewise, my friend. Likewise. And uh, I know it's a cliche, but God bless you for your service. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you saying that. It means a lot. Yeah. And I'll tell you, as a um, as an immigrant to this country from Canada, hmm. uh, I chose America. And of course, people who are born here are born here. Yeah. And um, and so it's an interesting thing to choose to become a citizen of a country that is not the country that you were born in.
1: Yeah, I get it. I'm an immigrant too. I'm originally from India. Yeah. I was born in India.
0: And, and you cho- chose not only uh, to be here, but of course to serve a country mm-hmm. that your uh, parents and grandparents um, didn't grow up in
1: hmm mm-hmm. It was a battle with my parents when that, <laughs> when that happened. They were not too pleased about it, which I understand. It was a challenging decision because I enlisted post 9-11. So, it was inevitable that I would be going to Iraq you know, or Afghanistan. And of course, I did go to
0: Iraq. Yeah. So, um, so tell me about that. You know, We're at an interesting time in our country around discussion of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to uh, broaden the discussion around immigrant entrepreneurs because I think it's Mm -hmm. not a discussion we're having. And as Mm -hmm. I'm apt to to underscore, Eric Yuan, founder of Zoom, that created over $20 billion in value in about seven or eight Mm -hmm. years, was denied entry to this country six or eight times. (laughs) Wow. I did not know that. That's wild. (laughs) So, you know, there's there's a broad conversation, I guess, on immigration. But all that said how is it that an immigrant to this country decides to put his life on his line for this country?
1: You know, when I, dec- when I decided to join, so I moved here when I was 13. So I didn't come here like by choice and, in, you know, like the way you did, I, like my parents moved, uh, my dad's job. And so I came and kind of, you know, it was cool. And I was, I loved my life here, but, uh, but got into some uh, darker spaces for a little while. Pretty heavily got into drugs for about a year and a half. Drugs, alcohol. I mean, I used to like... I still have scars on my arm. I used to cut myself. I have burn on my arm, burning myself. It was just in this very uh, self-destructive way. I even lost two friends to drug, drug addiction. And that like that was going to be me. I was the guy, the first one. Me and one of the guys were first in our group to start going into harder stuff. And he's no longer alive today. So that very well could have been me. But... The movie Black Hawk Down changed my life. I watched that movie. And uh, have you ever seen it? Of course. It's, it's a stunner. Yeah. It's a very, very, very powerful movie, right? And watching that movie and especially, I mean, there's so many powerful scenes in it. But there's this scene where these two snipers, Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar, these uh, Delta snipers, they volunteer from the chopper to go under the ground to set up a defensive perimeter to protect uh, Michael Durant. And they both died. They, they volunteered knowing that thousands of enemy, people, enemy, enemy personnel were coming their way, armed enemy personnel. And it was two men setting up a defensive perimeter against these thousands of people. And they both ultimately died. But the guy they died protecting, Michael Duran, is still alive today. And they received the Medal of Honor posthumously for what they did, which is the highest award in the U.S. military for valor. And just watching that just triggered something in me, that what kind of human beings would knowingly put themselves in a situation like that and sacrifice their lives for somebody else? You know, I hadn't really been exposed to courage of that capacity before this, really. And, uh, and it triggered something in me that what was, would I be able to do that? What was this kind of very, uh, you know, and obviously I didn't have an answer uh, and I really didn't like the person I was at the time as I started to become aware. So after watching the movie, I read the book, Black Hawk Down, and then just started reading book, like devouring book after book on military, on war and training, anything related to military or life in combat. and. That was it. I mean, almost overnight, I stopped doing drugs, decided to join the Marines. And I mean, it took me a little while to get in because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in Marine Corps boot camp. So I have this blood disorder. I also have flat feet, I also have scoliosis. So I have all these genetic flaws I was blessed with, <laughs> thanks to my mom. You sound perfect to me, brother. <laughs> I appreciate it, brother. <laughs> yeah, so I had to, it took me about a year and a half to get in just because I had to get these medical waivers. But that was the turning point. I mean, that's why, that's why I wanted to join. To serve in an institution where the good of the group matters more than you. The good, the well-being of the group, you serve for the people next to you. And everything is your men and the mission. And that's beautiful. It's tremendous.
0: Now, this might sound uh, maybe a little corny to some, maybe even to you. But, um, but did it feel like um, you were being called, that this was a calling for you?
1: It did. I mean, at that time, like there was nothing going to stop me because again, these two doctors were telling me that I couldn't go in. So I had to go, I was going to doctor after doctor because I had to get a civilian doctor's letter of approval to take to the military. And then they also had to clear me. Honestly, if it wasn't a post 9-11 world, I don't think I would have gotten the in military because flat feet and thalassemia, my blood disorder are both disqualifying conditions. So, uh, but you know, here's a young kid who wants to go into Marine Corps infantry, Let's use a body. Right. So, so, I mean, but it was a calling and nothing was going to stop me. I wasn't very fit when I joined uh, because I had just come out of a world of drugs. so Obviously I wasn't in the best shape of
0: my life, but nothing was going to come in my way. That was
1: my path. And
0: so. And the other one I'm curious about, and um, I say this with massive respect, so I hope you take it that way. No. (laughs) I think when somebody says, Hey, uh, picture a Marine in your head, um, a guy of your <laughs> size and build, I mean, um, I was listening to you uh, on Jordan Harbinger. and are, are, did, yeah. he, did you say you were, you're 135 pounds or something like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How the much do you weigh? 18, 135, 138 pounds, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what's the average weight of the average U.S. Marine?
1: <laughs> they are much bigger than me. I tend to be a little bit on the smaller side for and sure. And how tall are you? <laughs> I'm 5'7", just over 5'7".
0: Yeah. So like when you think of Marine, you think of Paul Bunyan or like the incredible Hulk or Superman or Batman or you have a, I mean, and of course you are a long distance runner, but you have a runner's body. Yeah. You have a, I mean, at the time I did not like before joining, I,
1: I'd actually bulked up a good bit before joining. So in the year and a half between sort of stopping drugs and deciding to go, and I started training, but I wasn't really, I didn't really know what I was doing. And to some degree, you know, I consciously maybe put on weight. Like I was, arguably slightly on the on the heavier side. I think I was like 155 plus 160. So I was heavier when I joined Joy. Oh, okay, but still. <laughs> I was still light. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. And I came out of boot camp. I came out of boot camp like 125 pounds. I was ridiculously skinny. Like my parents couldn't recognize me. I looked like some starving kid from India. You know, like, I mean,
0: I lost a ton of weight boot camp. <laughs> yeah, were there char- now- <laughs> charitable organizations wanting to save you or something? <laughs> I looked like it for sure.
1: <laughs> like, see, it was crazy. I was shocked. I mean, when I look at pictures right now, me right after boot camp, it's, I was like, Oh, I was pretty skinny. <laughs> now I'm like, you know, now I have kind of an ultra runner, like a runner's physique with some
0: muscle on me, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> and so, you know, I think I find so many things fascinating about you, but here's this guy who doesn't exactly physically fit the bill and who's, uh, you know, uh, not sort not so of a borderline drug addict, alcoholic, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. not in
0: very good shape. And you say, um. Not only am I going to serve my country in the military, I'm going to the Marines. Mm-hmm. I actually wanted to go. I, I mean, I actually wanted to go
1: Army and go Army Rangers and then into Delta because, like, Black Hawk Down was my inspiration, right? So Army Rangers and Delta were the unit. But I can I couldn't go into U.S. But I couldn't go into Special Forces or become an officer because I wasn't a U.S. citizen when I enlisted. I was only a green card holder. So in order to become an officer or be Special Forces, you need secret clearance, and in order to get that, you need to be a citizen. Which I wasn't either. So, so instead of doing that route, I thought I'll go sort of the best unit in the military. Sorry for anybody listening. Marines are the best. We all know it. Come on, <laughs> but a murmur. So I was decided to go into the best unit, the Marines, and um, and then eventually go Special Forces later on once I got my citizenship. Obviously, that path changed in my journey, but that's why I went Marines. It was the best. You know, the toughest training, longest boot camp, all that kind of thing. So. I mean I wasn't in the best shape by any means I suffered through boot camp for sure <laughs> I fell back a little bit on some hikes but I got fitter and I and my, mentally I was ready for the challenge because I mean like I mean and that's what boot camp is it's a mental battle like for example we had this one kid uh came into a uh, Boot camp, and from what I heard from his buddy, he was in our Saint Platoon before boot camp. He was like a hard charger, you know, running 16 miles, ready to be a Marine, wearing Marine shirts. Came into boot camp, and two weeks in, just broke down crying, like wouldn't get up, just sat there with his like with his arms and his knees crying because I mean it's all mental, right? Boot camp is just an initiation, and mentally, I was ready. I mean, no matter what, I wasn't going to break. That was that was it, you know. So,
0: and how old were you? Remind
1: me. I was, uh, 18 or 19 when I finally ended up, ended up at boot camp 2004. So yeah, about 19, I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, of course I've read about it and heard you on, <laughs> uh, in other forums, but yeah. I'd love it if you could tell me a little bit about, you know, the salient things about your, um, your time where you were deployed.
1: Yeah so you know then uh once I once I got into the once I finished uh boot camp and infantry school I got into my unit and I was volunteering to go to Iraq every chance I could get I mean I was well, wanted to go into combat right um so twice the marines told me I was going twice they canceled it and then finally in 2007 I was deployed uh but when I, when I got like in my, my words, when I got my opportunity, I was was radiant. I mean, I was smiling. I was like, finally. And uh, I had many different jobs. I mean, I was Marine Corps infantry, so you know, we were out the out the wire, the wire is sort of our like our base. We were out the base almost seven days a week. I mean, we must have gotten like a week off total that seven months we were out out in Iraq. And I mean, I had many different jobs. But one of my jobs, which was one of my jobs, was to walk in front of our vehicle convoys looking for IEDs, which are improvised explosive devices or bombs, before they could be used to blow up our vehicles and kill me and my fellow Marines.
0: So that was... So uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I know this. and I, First of all, this is not a job that any of us civilians thought was a job. Um, second of all, do you have some kind of a something in front of you? Do you have like a, some kind of a metal detector or something? Or no, are you just no, the first sure guy to blow up? Yeah.
1: If something, if you don't do a good job spotting, you're, you'd be the first guy to blow up. I mean, so what happens is the way, the way this will work is anytime we cross the danger zone. So for example, let's say a bridge, or let's say if there's big piles of sand next to it or something that the squad were in vehicles of three, like three vehicle convoys. Like a bridge was always one because they could hide bombs under the bridge. We would, we would get out one, two Marines, me and one other Marine and one would take the left side or right side and kind of walk through the bridge, making sure there's no wires, checking around. And once we cross it, then we sort of wave the convoy over and get back in the vehicles and control kind of get back on our convoy. So, and if we did find stuff, which we did a lot, then we would call EOD, which is Explosive Ordnance Disposal. And then they would come in take care of it. Yeah. So
0: you weren't expected to both detect it and
1: disarm no. it. <laughs> no, we were not going to disarm it. <laughs> that was definitely not our job. <laughs> Certainly we're not
0: qualified. For that. <laughs> I think many of us in our jobs, uh, Akshay, can be doing our job and, and at times lose a little focus. You see people do it <laughs> while driving the car. I do it while driving yeah. the car. Yeah, yeah. I listen to music in the car and singing a song and all yeah. of a sudden, somebody's cutting you off, and you. So we all lose focus in the things that we do. Yeah. How did you keep the focus doing this?
1: It's hard because I mean, one of our sort of mantras in Iraq and the Marines was complacency kills, and in that case, it's very literal because complacency could kill you. I mean, I still use that mantra today, but obviously the the the, the, the consequences are not the same in that you know it's not going to kill me literally. But yeah, I mean, it, and it wasn't easy. I mean, we had days where like because it because the nature of the war, right? I mean, you could go. One month two months three months without anything happening and you start getting complacent and that one second something you you miss that's when something can go horribly horribly wrong I mean we had a vehicle in our convoy in our co- company I wasn't in that convoy but we had a vehicle in our company that did get hit with an IED thankfully Nobody was killed, but we did have a vehicle get hit, you know, and, uh, that could happen. So, I mean, it happens to the best of us. I didn't, it didn't often happen when I was walking for, <laughs> to search for bombs because at that point you're kind of on, on edge and on alert. But I mean, other times in vehicles, you know, like I'm not going to lie, but I got complacent. I might be sitting in the back, like, you know, whatever. And then, uh, and, and you just, and it happens, but you really have to keep reminding yourself that things can go horribly wrong if you're not careful for that one second. And, uh, and that's all you do is reminding yourself. And some days, you know, we had rounds go off. We had a rocket hit right outside our base. They didn't kill any Marines, but they killed four civilians in Iraq. We had all kinds of, I mean, they were, they were killing more civilians than they were killing us. I mean, we had one, the first week we were there, they cut the head off a local Iraqi and threw it in the streets as a sort of warning. That is what happens if you work with the Americans, but it had the reverse effect. And the Iraqis actually working with us to help find these insurgents who were, like I said, killing more civilians than they were killing us. So that kind of stuff was happening. Um, you know, it wasn't the Wild West. There weren't firefights happening left and right. It wasn't like, you know, like combat in that, in sort of war zone 24-7. It was mostly nothing happening
0: with spurts of things happening that you better be aware of. And so in those situations, how do you go from maybe weeks or longer where things don't feel threatening
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: and then all of a sudden you're on? So how do you go from, you know, zero to 60 in an instant, particularly when you haven't, you're on alert, but you you haven't had to hit the throttle.
1: Yeah, um, you know, Marines firstly are. <laughs> crazy in the sense that we're looking for the fight like I mean I remember one day there were some rounds going off and we are like we're everybody's nobody's cowering everybody's just waiting for the fight to come to them right like we are itching for it fiending for it so to some degree like my army buddy actually did the best job of describing the marines like he said that if the army and the marines were both told to get from point a to point b and between the two there's a like a town with with enemy, the army would go around it. The marines would destroy everything in their path to get to it. <laughs> and this is an army buddy who told me that, right? So, and I was like, that's a fairly accurate thing. So, to some degree, we're, I guess, we're kind of seeing it because I'm, you know, the, the reality is, combat and war is an addictive environment. It's an addictive, very addictive uh, experience. I mean, when I came back from Iraq, I, I, I was disappointed that I felt like I haven't experienced war to the, and again, naively to some degree, but haven't experienced war to the desire I was seeking. So I wanted to go back, but, uh, but kind of, I mean, coming back to kind of answer your question, you're one, we're ready for it. We're seeking it. And two, you kind of, um, to some degree, you're always on a higher degree, like higher on edge than, than you would be at home anyway, because of the nature of the war. It's like Vietnam, it's counterinsurgency warfare, right? So you're walking through cities and not, you know everybody's a civilian. Most people are just normal people trying to live their lives, but you never know who is the one person who wants to kill you. And that inherently keeps you a little bit more on edge anyway. You know what I mean? Like for, as one example, um, what, what the women over there, they would often wear the burqas, right? And so... What, what the men started doing because they knew that we wouldn't physically search a woman like physically pat a woman down out of respect some sometimes we heard that this was happening that the that men would start wearing burqas and have explosives wrapped like suicide vests wrapped around them because they knew we wouldn't search them so often when we would see a woman in, in a burqa we would look at their feet to see if they had manly looking feet so like in that sense you're kind of always on edge especially and you have when you're around these in these towns but um uh, but you, but you're just ready for it. I mean, it's like, again, we're trained so much that it, when, it, when it goes down, we're just ready to almost in some ways, like I said, I mean, that's cra- I don't, I don't know if it sounds crazy or what it sounds like, but almost seeking it to some
0: degree. It almost, it doesn't sound crazy to me. <laughs> and by the way, I, I, I'm trying to say this as nicely as I can, but it's just in the head, in my head, the way it is. <laughs> I think at some level, if you don't understand that you're sort of fooling yourself because the reason you and I are here in part, is our ancestors were good at fighting. The, our ancestors were the ones that survived, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so fighting is inhuman DNA, right? Fight or flight, it's primordial. And so, and what you sound like to me is, uh, frankly, like a UFC fighter or a football player, Right. Yeah. And you hear about UFC fighters or, or boxers, right? Or kickboxers or moita, whatever, martial artists, right? Yeah. You hear about why it's so hard to retire because there's nothing that prov- provides that, that rush, that adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Is that how it is for you? Oh, without a doubt that high. I mean, when, that's
1: when I came back, I suffered. I was struggling coming back. I mean, I wanted to go back to war every chance I could get. I once again was volunteering. I was like, send me back to Iraq, to Afghanistan, just somewhere, you know, uh, I was ready to go back. And when I didn't get that, when I wasn't getting that opportunity, I, um, at one point, I thought I'd become a mountain climbing bum. So seek out sort of, the intensity, the life-threatening experiences in a different context. But I, I still had a year left on my Marine contract after finishing undergrad. So I decided to go to journalism school because I wanted to become a war photographer. So I wanted to go back to war, but as a journalist to become a war, either combat photographer or combat journalist. So one way or the other, I was seeking I was seeking back. And even to this day, like even right now, this is, you know, I got out of the Marines in 2010 so and, and got out of Iraq in 2008. So what, 12, 11, 12 years later, I still... I, I have to wrestle with the urge to want to go back to, that, to those environments because there's still a giant part of me that would thrive going back there. So you <laughs> kind of still want to go back? Without a doubt. Without a doubt, I still want to go back. Uh, because, I mean, you know, part of it's an addictive thing, but part of it is you, do not experience, you cannot experience, you cannot understand and really taste the human experience at its fullest unless you experience it at its most extremes, When you experience humanity at its most intense, at its most extremes, it is um, horrific and beautiful and magnificent um, all at the same time. There's something tremendous about experiencing humanity at that level. And I still feel like a part of me still feels like I haven't truly gone to the depths uh, in terms of the external experience of human Let's say suffering, uh, and it's not that I w- obviously want people to suffer. I, 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 there's a part of me that wants to go experience it, so I can do something about it, and so I can have it live with me. And in some ways, as I don't, I mean, as masochistic as this may sound, but as and torment me, so I hold on to that into my consciousness to remind me that the world is in pain, and I believe I can do something about it. But so there's there's something. Um, you know, it's hard to even it's hard to use the word beautiful in, in, in the context of human suffering like that. Not I wouldn't say beautiful, but there's something intense about experiencing humanity at that level that is alluring, that drives me. Um, the only thing keeping from me, keeping me from it is because now I kind of realize that it's actually kind of selfish of me to want to go back, even though I want to go back to let's say, let's say places like Syria or Yemen, you know, where this war is happening. And and go go there to help, to genuinely be of service to humanity who have seen suffering because I've seen suffering in so many contexts, not just in war. I've worked in leper colonies. I've worked with these young girls who are victims of sex trafficking, like just seeing the intensity of the human suffering, right? And, and although I want to go to some of these spaces still – I have to remind myself that in some ways it's actually selfish because I can do more good for the world right now by let's say promoting my book Fearvana, spreading the Fearvana message, doing what I want to do, building this business. I can help more people than maybe the handful of people I could help in a war zone because I'm going there to seek a high. And if I were to, if I would have been killed let's say before I wrote my book because I was seeking this. There is a lot of lives that I could not have touched through my work, uh, not just in terms of like people reading the book but the thousands of dollars we raised for charity. And that is, that wouldn't have been right because I was selfishly seeking in some ways, uh, you can call it even a high, you know? So I have to remind myself of that. And sometimes constantly, because when life is, when the mundane becomes too much, that's where my mind goes. That's where I want to go. And I have to temper it. it I want to go to, to- Syria. <laughs> I want to go to a war zone. I want to go somewhere where there's, uh, to experience humanity at that level. I was recently in, I mean, Liberia wasn't like a war zone. It was a post-conflict zone, but last year I was in Liberia. And I mean, again, there wasn't wars happening, but like I was, I was working with former child soldiers who've just seen more suffering than most of us could imagine. I mean, that's children watching their parents being killed, one, one, one kid I was talking to saw his girlfriend and I quote, raped to death, which is just horrifying to even think about what that, what that means. And, you know, and then made to become a child soldier, forced to do drugs, forced to kill people like the whole, the, like just the the capacity of human evil that is out there is the experience through these child soldiers, through victims of sex trafficking, you know? So I was in Liberia and there's something again, like uh, it was an incredible experience to be able to contribute to, just, I mean, through my foundation, we've supported that organization, but even being on, but if there's not like, it's one thing to, to, to donate and I love, you know, I donate a lot of money charity and all that kind of stuff, but it's another thing to be on the ground in these experiences, right? It's a very different world. And so it's, uh, it's, it is, it is, magnificent in
0: many ways to, to to be able to serve on the ground in that capacity. So there's so many things to go to in, <laughs> in everything you just said. In no particular order, this idea of suffering, in terms of your own personal suffering, and I'm sort of thinking out loud with you, so I'm not even sure I agree with what I'm about to say, but if you think about suffering, you know, I've been thinking a lot about suffering of late. There's suffering that is to some degree or to a much degree self-imposed. So when you decide to go do all this extreme running and (laughs) you're pooping yourself and you're doing all this, (laughs) like you could just not do that. Right. So
1: yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) But you've chosen a path and, and, and that's legitimate suffering, but it's a chosen journey you're on. Yeah. Um, and then there's, you know, what Viktor Frankl calls, uh, in a man's search for meaning, you know, truly unavoidable suffering when Mm -hmm. you're serving our country in, Mm -hmm. in in a foreign land. And, um, one of your fellow Marines gets killed. Mm -hmm. That kind of a loss is, if that doesn't meet the definition, I don't know what does. And, and, and that you got to walk through fire to deal with loss like that, that Mm -hmm. epic loss or experience, you know, a beheading or the results of a beheading and, and, you know, many other things that you've shared. And so. In the, we'll get to the chosen suffering, but in the domain of the truly unavoidable suffering, maybe share with me a little bit about experiences in that regard and and what they've taught you.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, as you mentioned, I lost a uh, lost a friend actually. So I mean, like just to, as far as what happened, so this friend of mine, this brother really, when we when I first joined the unit, he him and me got very very close. We, uh, we trained together, but I would always beat him by a few points, like a few points in the rifle range, a few seconds in a run, you know? And so we volunteered to go to war every chance we get. We, we were the one who volunteered twice. The Marines canceled us. Uh, Marines canceled it. And one summer while I was here vacationing in India, he ended up finally finding a unit to go with. And he was, when he was in Iraq, he was promoted to corporal because he was a good Marine. And as a result, he was happened to be in a position that got hit with an IED and he was killed. So... Before going to war and after coming back, I felt like I had no right to be off vacationing, off having fun. I should have gone there with him and I should have gotten that promotion because I used to beat him by a few points. And not because I wanted the promotion, because I should have been in his seat and I should have been killed instead of him. So, you know, that you, you, that stays with you to this day. I've lost two junior Marines to suicide. One of my junior Marines who killed himself, shot himself in the head a few months, a few few weeks, I think it was after the war. Um, a few weeks before doing that, he asked me, he said, corporal not a body. Can you take me out rock climbing? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know? Um, and, uh, I didn't got busy and, uh, I'm not, I don't know if it would have saved his life or not, but you know, that stuff stays with you. So, and then I experienced my own suffering after the war. I mean, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, struggled with depression. I'd gone through phases in my life where I would, drink like i mean full bottle of vodka every single day drink until i pass out wake up the next day one of the bottles done Drive to the liquor store drink another one and this would go on for six seven days straight and uh until one day i was on the verge of suicide i literally was about to walk over to my kitchen pick up a knife and slit my wrist. you know so going through these dark times has it's it's far from pleasant when you're in them obviously uh but what I have learned is that for one, to some degree, they're unavoidable. Every human being is going to go through some degree of suffering or not, whether their external reality is, creates it. But when we see people who seemingly have everything, right, money, wealth, fame, everything, and yet they suffer more internally than other people in the world who seemingly externally are going through hell, right? So one way or the other, we're going to suffer. But I believe that the, the, uh, like, that the most important skill to master in life is the ability to develop a positive relationship to the experience of pain and suffering. Because that's the that's the most important skill. Because if you can be
0: sorry, can I just sure, interrupt no, you? No, please. Can you please. just say exactly what you just said one more time slowly? Sure. The most
1: important skill in life, the most important skill to master, is to develop a positive relationship
0: to suffering. I'm beginning to come to a place where I think that you might just very well be right, mm-hmm. but and I know what my opinion is, but I'm very curious about why you say that. Why why you're there? Yeah. Because
1: if you if you know how to suffer well, as I like to say, if you can suffer with a smile, because ultimately, why do we do anything? Like, why are we seeking anything? Why do we do anything in life? You can, to, at the core, to be happier, to be fulfilled. Whatever word you want to use, inner peace, happiness, fulfillment, right? Like that, some version of that. And if you can suffer well, if you can smile in the face of suffering, inevitably, You will live a happier life because when, even, because even when life punches you in the face, you'll be able to smile in the face of that. You'll be able to find meaning in that suffering, find, or as Dostoevsky said, which Victor Frankl quotes in Man's Search for Meaning, to be worthy of your sufferings, you know, and, uh, and, and not just in like there's the suffering, like you said, that handed to you by life, and then the suffering you seek, right? But even any worthy challenge is going to be hard building a business, writing a book, running a marathon, whatever, any worthwhile challenge is going to be hard. You're going to struggle, you're going to suffer, you're going to go through stress, through fear, all of that. And if you can embrace that, fall in love with that experience, you can, you'll, you'll be able to move through and achieve the result that you want to achieve as well. And so what these experiences taught me was to find beauty, even in the darkness. And I'll give you an example of that. When I went to, you know, when I was diagnosed with PTSD, what happened was why even, why I was even pursuing it was, um, I was struggling with my now, now ex-wife, but physically, like I wasn't able to have sex. And, uh, and it wasn't a physical issue, it was a psychological issue, right? So she was like, why don't you go to the therapist, we'll find out. And when I went there, I was diagnosed and stuff like that. And I was getting, getting the help, and you're trying to get help. But something wasn't working, like it didn't feel right to me. And they would tell me things like, don't feel guilty, you know, uh, don't feel guilty. Like rationally, I get it. I could have gone to war with my buddy, Neil, and he could have he still died. War is unpredictable. Bullets fly where they fly, Right. But emotionally, it didn't change the fact that I was guilty. And so everybody told me, don't feel guilty. You know, they said, because I'm afraid of crowds, it means I have post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, because I was jumpy with loud noises, it means I have post-traumatic stress disorder. But what I came to learn as I started healing myself and doing the research, like neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, studying it, because this external therapy wasn't working. So I started delving into research myself to heal my own brain when I came out of that moment that I was on the brink of suicide. I started to distinguish that post-traumatic stress is not, is not post-traumatic stress disorder, like jumpy from loud noises. Uh, being vigilant of crowds; those were normal human responses to war, because my brain said loud noises can equal death. Even survivor's guilt; it's not just veterans who feel it. Anybody who loses somebody often feels that. Why them and not me? It's a so so guilt is an expression of love. So what I learned to do is find meaning in that darkness. As an example, hold on, hold
0: on, hold on. Can I sure. slow you on that one? Sure, please. Can you yeah. just <laughs> say what you said about guilt again, and nice and slow for the. Uh, <laughs> whiskey stained brain here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That guilt is an expression of love. I mean, why
1: did I feel guilty? Why did I feel guilty? Because I love my brother. Guilt is not this bad emotion that people people say, you know, good emotions, bad emotions. There are no good or bad emotions. There's just emotions and every emotion is part of the human experience and every emotion can teach us something. Guilt is just was guilt was my expression of love for my brother. Right. And so what I did was I found meaning in it. And I, and I had this poster up on my wall of my friend and me And for a long time, only recently did I change the word, but the word said, this should have been you, earn this life. Only recently did I change it to honor his death, earn this life, because the guilt was taking me too far and I was going into some dark spaces a bit too much. But for a long time, I reframed my guilt and found meaning in it. So there's value in the darkness. So let's go back, honor his death, earn your life. That's what I shift it. Initially, it said, this should have been you, earn this life. Today it says honor his death, earn this life. So, walk me through why the change. The change was very recent. It was just a few months ago. Because um, and actually, this really interesting thing happened when that um, it, the, the change. Well, I explain the change, and I explain this interesting thing that happened. The change was because I started to realize that I was. Um, The guilt was driving me too far. You know, any emotion can take you, any emotion can take you into a dark space. Even joy, if I'm constantly seeking joy, you're not going to experience the worthy struggle to pursue a challenge, right? So any emotion can be taken too far, but there's value in all of it. You just have to exercise self-awareness to realize it. And I was realizing that like, I was feeling guilty about everything. I was, if I was working, I'd be feeling guilty that I'm not spending time with my family. If I'm spending time with family, I'm feeling guilty I'm not working. And the only thing getting me through to achieve what I've achieved was just pure grit and will. But it was a miserable existence, and I was going too much into dark spaces all the time, just constantly feeling guilty about everything. If I was having fun, I felt guilty, you know, because again, where did that stem from that I felt guilty that I was in India off having fun when I should have gone to war instead, and I should have died instead. So Becoming self-aware of it, realizing that it was—it served me until it didn't, right? It served me for that time, and then it, then it was getting too much, and I shifted, his, shifted the words to honor his death. And one of the inspirations with that was reading this book, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People by Harold Kushner, and he says a beautiful line in it. He says, the dead depend on us for their redemption and their immortality. Absolutely love that, right? And it was when it was about honoring his death. It's like that saving Private Ryan, that scene in the end of the movie where Tom Hanks grabs Matt Damon and he says, earn this, you know? So, honor his death was that this is the time to now like the redemption and, you know, to honor his his life and honor his death. But something actually interesting happened once I made the shift. I ended up like I was cleaning up my house and I found this folder that had the old words on it. And the words said, it's still said, you know, this should have been you earn this life. And for the first time in my life, and this literally happened, like it was weeks ago, for the first time in my life, this thought entered my mind saying, I'm glad it wasn't me. And I broke down crying because I felt so guilty feeling that thought that and then never not until and this happened, he died in you know, 2007. I had never for one second felt that, that I'm glad it wasn't me. And this thought entered my mind. And the reason and, and it, it broke me down, but it was a very cathartic experience because the reason it entered my mind was because I think for the first time, truly, I was starting to value my own life, you know, and, uh, it's still something I'm wrestling with, uh, because this just happened. So I'm still kind of building the muscles around it, but
0: it was, it was an interesting experience. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with me. That is very, very yeah. powerful. And I think it's, a, it's, it's cool that you're allowing yourself to think that.
1: Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was still, it was it was hard feeling that because again, like I said, I felt guilty for it and I haven't, and again, I'm still yeah. wrestling. The thing with stuff everybody
0: around. always says to me on this sort of stuff is, well, what would he want for you, right? Yeah. He would want you to be stoked that you're alive. Yeah. And I know I would if it was situations reversed, of course, you know? Right. Yeah. So the other one I really want to ask you about is um, evil and what it's like to feel like evil is in your face and breathing on you nonstop.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I'd love, I'd love to hear about your thoughts, you know, what, what evil means to you and what it's like to be surrounded by it. Yeah. Um, you know, the,
1: the capacity that we have as human beings to hurt others, uh, to willingly inflict suffering to inhuman degrees to others is, it's horrific. It's, it, it baffles me. Uh, and you know, I've, I've always been almost to some degree also fascinated by what drives a person. Like I was a younger kid. I used to read a lot of books on serial killers, you know, just to understand the psychology of it. My parents thought I was out of my mind, but (laughs) by the way, (laughs) all of them, I read all that shit, all of it. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like the psychology of what drives us to do that is, I mean, I actually wrote the my history thesis on the genocide in Rwanda. Because here we're normal people suddenly picking up arms and killing their neighbors, right? Like, and what, how we can do that to each other. I mean, you just read these, these, these horrific experiences. I mean, again, there's, they can, there's list of horrific experiences goes on and on. Like I've read books about Baton Death March, the Nanking, Rape of Nanking, all these kind of things, all kinds of. And, and so I guess um, to me, the evil is the ability to, inf- to willingly inf- inflict suffering on in another human being in any kind, uh, is it's, yeah, it's, it's, just, I mean, that's, it's, it's baffling. It's, 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 it's evil and it's, uh, it's horrific and, and it's jarring to be around it. Um, I guess to some degree, you know, there's this interesting duality of evil and quote unquote good because, you know, war, for example, is this example of war is this experience that brings out the worst and the best of humanity you see people doing horrific things to each other, but you also people see, see people jumping on grenades to save their fellow human beings. Or I don't know if you've seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge, one of my favorites. Uh, it's, it's an amazing movie, true story, Medal of Honor recipient of this guy who single-handedly dragged 75 people off a cliff and in the middle of firefights, you know? And so you see these acts of inhuman courage. So to some degree, I guess, um, the capacity for human evil also brings out the finest capacity for human good. And, and, and I guess that's what, that's what the draw is to me to experience, uh, to go into experiences like that, because only at the, only at the most extremes, can you truly understand the nature of what it means to be human. And I'm drawn by that, but it's, it's jarring. It stays with you. And sometimes, like, I mean, to this day, it's a muscle I'm building about. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very well aware that my proclivity is to go into dark spaces. And I'm now, uh, only like like I said, fairly recently, only now really proactively, um, practicing more joy practicing, engaging more triggers of, um, lightness, (laughs) just lightness because my mind can go into
0: some dark spaces and it can be intense. When evil is just like on you in your face, you know? Yeah. And in a stunning and shocking way, like I, I think of my own blissful ignorance Mm -hmm. and, um, what it was like to grow up in Canada and, and live in the United States and, travel all over the world but to generally very safe places and to never you know to understand it but to mm. never have it right on you impact yeah. your life in such a profound way and to feel like it's right there like to the point where you can't close your fucking eyes because what you see is horrible right that's that's an experience of evil that i had um never encountered and i can't imagine um your experience of evil.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I haven't even tasted it to some degree to the people that I worked with, like the guy who is a child soldier, for example, and he's seen it at a, or like these young girls that I work with. I mean, these are 12, 10 year old girls who've been trafficked and made to have sex consistently multiple times a day for years. I mean, to somebody to do that to another human being is, and I've, I've seen these young girls. I've worked with these young girls. I've chatted with these young girls. I I mean, I support them through my foundation too. And it's, it's, the most humbling thing and it's the horrific thing and it's I, yeah I, I don't even know i mean it's just i guess like, like i guess to, to some degree a part of me is is it, and so i guess i guess seeing evil like that you also see good like that you know and victor Frankl, coming back to man's search for meaning one of my favorite books of all time i mean look at the evil he experienced right to, like to be pushed in a co- put in a concentration camp again you're experiencing the depths of human evil but there's that one part in the book he talks about where he refers to being worthy of your suffering he talks about people in the concentration camp who would give away their last piece of bread to somebody else. Now, obviously, a lot of people didn't make it. But I mean, just think about that. Somebody who's being tortured, starving, cold, tired, miserable, still choosing to give their last piece of bread to some other human being. I mean, the capacity for somebody to do that. Now, like the unfortunate reality is that cannot be brought out in the mundane, right? And I'm not, I am not—I don't wish anybody, any human being ever be in a situation like that. But I guess the the experience of evil also leads to the experience of like the, the young girls, talking about these young girls, the courage that they display after having gone through what they've gone through. Like there's this one young girl I was chatting with. Now she's a Zumba instructor. She, and you just talk to her, like her level of maturity, how she, she wants to help others smile. She wants to help others feel joy. I mean, her level of maturity and wisdom, I still don't have. I'm 35 at her age. I was a dumbass, you know? So, so But you see her capacity to transcend her evil is, is inhuman in the most beautiful way. And so I guess partly, I guess the experience of evil to that capacity also allows you to see the experience of good to an inhuman capacity. And I suppose that's the ultimate draw of it. But again, the, the, the challenge is that you, you, when you go, when you experience the light at its most light, I mean, you also experience the most, the darkest at its most darkest. You know I mean? I, I think you probably heard, I, I spent seven days in a darkness retreat that was truly like a literal experience of this, that when I came out of it and I saw the light, we can chat more about it, but like just one thing is like, when I saw the light after seven days in the dark, I remember just thinking that I wish I could see the the world every day through these eyes and feeling a true sense of gratitude for every bit of pain I experienced because I realized that you cannot see the light that way unless you've been in the dark. And I think that transcends to the entire human experience as well.
0: Well, and that gets us back to the chosen suffering. And uh, you, 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 my friend, uh, appear to (laughs) choose suffering uh, proactively and with, uh, it's seeming, you'll tell me, I hope, enthusiasm in a way that is uh, highly unusual for a human being and so this 7 days in darkness all this extreme i mean the extreme running you do is and the places you do it so so maybe take me into this this chosen suffering and and why sure. uh these these uh, these activities these sunday walk in the parks that you take <laughs> why you take them I think seeking out what I call a worthy suffering,
1: right? We all have our our own. We doesn't have to be running ultra marathons, climbing mountains, spending seven days in darkness, but seeking out a worthy suffering is what gives life meaning because you cannot truly discover who you are unless you go into spaces that you that that unless you go into spaces of pain unless you go into spaces of suffering because i like to think of suffering as a training ground for self transcendence and i believe self transcendence is everything like victor frankl says it beautifully again coming back to him he's one of the, one of my favorite books so i quote him a lot he says self actualization is a side effect of self transcendence and self actualization is a side effect of self transcendence and if ultimately what we all are seeking is self actualization right maslow's hierarchy of needs that the highest need is self actualization Self suffering is the training ground for self transcendence, which teaches, which is the access point to self actualization. So suffering is how we transcend ourselves. So, because when you're in pain, in order to keep moving forward, literally, whether I'm running like 80 miles, like for example, recently I ran 80 miles around a 02 mile loop, psychological and physical torture, right?
0: Or all kinds of hold on, I hold on handsome, <laughs> you, <laughs> I just make sure you ran 80 miles, yeah, <laughs> around a two what mile 0.2. loop? Point 0.2 mile. 0.2 mile loop. Point 0.2 mile loop. How long does it take to do that?
1: <laughs> what was it? Like 20 plus, 20 hours, something like that?
0: I was super happy with 20 did hours. Did you plus. let yourself listen to music or podcasts or something?
1: Uh, in that case, I ate it. half of it was without half of it was with, with. Probably more than half was without. So I wanted my mind to go where it goes. <laughs> oh, God. For the love of... <laughs> Wow, dude, yeah, how yeah. recently was this? This was a couple a few months ago now. I mean, I just got back to in India it was actually here in India where I'm where I'm speaking right now. And I have this this little
0: loop around this pool downstairs this point two miles. So I'm actually gonna be doing it like um, about, You're <laughs> like a mix of um uh, an extreme athlete and a jackass movie. <laughs> I like that. That's a good that's a good mix. I say that with love and respect. I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> So what the fuck are you seeking when you do these things? I'm seeking,
1: (laughs) good question. Uh, I get that a lot. When I actually, when I spent, so one of the other things I did, I spent a month dragging 190 pounds sled, 350 miles across the world's second largest ice cap at minus 40 degrees. Training for it, I used to drag tires around the streets of New Jersey. And people used to stop me and ask me, what are you doing? And I would tell them and they'd be like, why? (laughs) So I get it a lot. Why? Because I think that like, like putting yourself in these spaces, in spaces where, you're going to want to quit, where you're miserable, where you're suffering physically, psychologically, spiritually. You tap into something that you cannot tap into, into the mundane. If you're sitting in a comfort zone, I mean, see, if you think about it, if you want more out of life, just on a like, practical level, if you want to get more, whatever you want, money, you know, physical health, any, anything more, you have to do something you've never done before, right? Like, because otherwise you're not going to get it. You're just, if you do the same thing, you're only going to get the same thing. So if you have to do something you've never done before, which means you're gonna have to take a risk, which means there's going to be fear. There's going to be stress. There's going to be anxiety. Now I seek it at a level that's maybe more intense, perhaps more intense than most (laughs)
0: because just perhaps, perhaps (laughs) my, uh, my wife has a t-shirt that she picked up recently. And on the front of it, it says indoorsy. (laughs) <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who are indoorsy. Indoorsy.
1: <laughs> I get it. And and believe me, I get it. Like, I mean, there's moments when I do these where it just absolutely, I mean, everything worthwhile I've done, to be honest with you, I've had moments where I just absolutely hated it and wanted to quit. I mean, hell, even writing my book was one of the hardest things I ever did. It was miserable writing that damn book. But, uh, but like, it was worth it, you know? So I seek out suffering to this degree because... It teaches you more about yourself than any other experience can. And you also cannot grow without struggle. Like you just cannot evolve. You cannot evolve into the next version of yourself. You cannot actualize the self. You cannot reach your next potential. You cannot um, transcend yourself into the next self unless you suffer. Now everybody's suffering is different. You built businesses; that's its own kind of suffering, right? Writing a book is its own kind of suffering. Uh, I mean, I like for me, writing a book was harder than running. I used to sometimes go running marathons just to procrastinate on writing because <laughs> writing a book was much harder, right? So seeking out suffering is the is the is how you train yourself to transcend. Like putting yourself in spaces where one part of you wants to quit this fight and the other part wants to keep moving forward, to keep in the fight. When you put yourself in situations like that, you will learn more about yourself than you could possibly ever imagine. And that to me is so
0: yes. worth it. And there's no other domain that's like that. Exactly. You literally learn what you're made of or, or maybe said more accurately, decide what you're going to be made of. I love that. I like that distinction. Yeah. You, you get to create yourself
1: in those spaces. Cause I don't believe there's a self inherently defined, you know, it's not about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself and you create yourself. Self, by putting yourself in those situations. Because when you go into those situations, I mean, that's how confidence is built. You know, like kids, when you, like a baby, for example, just at the most you know, practical level, a baby falls a million times and then gets back up and walks to walk. But you get confident by falling, by suffering, by failing, by taking risks and rising above it, transcending yourself and keep moving forward. That's how you grow in confidence. That's how you build self-esteem. That's how you actualize the self. So it's, it's I mean, it's, it's so worth it. And it's, uh, and you know, I didn't get here overnight. I didn't get to running 80 miles overnight. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to be terrified of Ferris wheels. So I was scared of everything. So, you know, you work your way up the ladder of suffering, if you want to call it that. And then inevitably, it's sort of addictive. Like I've gone through runs where I'd be running and I'd be like, I hate this. Why am I doing this nonsense? And I'd finish the run and immediately start planning the next one. You know what I mean? So uh, it's, it's the nature of the beast, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it for what you gain, not just from the experience, like not just after the experience is over, but even when you're in it. Yeah, and so choose a struggle uh, worthy of your life yeah worthy of who you want to be who who you know we all have a different worthy suffering i have a friend who wants to be a chess grandmaster like that's her worthy struggle you know some people want to write movies some people want to play guitar whatever it may be anything worthwhile is going to be hard you're going to go through fear, you're going to go through stress, you're going to go through anxiety, you're going to suffer. But these are not bad things, which which comes brings back that developing a positive relationship is suffering, because the world demonizes suffering. Like how many people who like will say things like be fearless, don't be scared. Our whole our whole world talks about eliminating stress. I mean, I hear I hear I literally see people on social media demonizing struggle, like, like success doesn't have to be a struggle, but you're missing the freaking point if that's what you're seeking because it's not about, I mean, there's all kinds of nonsense, right? Like walk 14 minutes a day and you'll get six pack abs. Firstly, that's just not true. It's just bullshit, right? But even if that's what you're seeking, even if you're seeking the shortest point, you're missing the point. It's not about the six pack abs. It's not about making a million dollars. It's not about the dream house. It's about the person you become on that journey. And if you seek it without, without the suffering that you take to get there, and we like lottery winners are the best example, it doesn't really improve their life and they mostly lose all their money anyway because they haven't transformed as a person to earn that result. It's not about the six-pack abs. It's about the suffering you go through to get there. That's what the, that's what the value is. That journey is the destination.
0: You know, That's what matters. And, and did you say at the top there, did you say you were talking about your friend, you said that's her worthy struggle.
1: Yeah, that's what I call Like I, I don't like what's that your worthy,
0: What So what's, what's, your what's my reason? worthy struggle?
1: Yeah. I, I call it like your path, whatever you want to call it. Like that's, I call it a worthy struggle because it will be a struggle. And I don't like that term, follow your passion. Like passion for what you do is not a bad thing, but it makes when me nuts. Say, oh, I hate it. Right. Yeah. You get it. <laughs> like, because for, I mean, for multiple reasons, but one reason, which is primary, I, in my opinion, is that when you say follow your passion, especially like younger kids, it often conveys this idea that if you just follow your passion, you'll never have to work a day in your life. You know, if you love what you do and that's bullshit, like, it, 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 following your passion, and I speak, when I speak to young kids, I share this all the time. Like, you're, you, can, you can do the thing you love, and it's going to feel like work. It's going to go through moments where it absolutely sucks, and you hate it, but you keep moving forward anyway. <laughs> so I don't like that term, follow your passion, which is why I call it your worthy struggle to reframe our relationship, to help people develop a positive relationship with those words itself. I mean, often when I do talks, I'll, share, I'll, I'll, I'll start a talk with, saying, with, with showing words like fear, stress, anxiety, pain, suffering, adversity, and ask, you know, how many of you think of it as a positive word? most, no, like anywhere I do this, nobody thinks of this as positive words. And that's the problem. When you you start saying these are positive words, these are beautiful words. And again, it's far from easy because the nature of suffering is that it's suffering. It's a more challenging experience than joy and happiness and calm, but it doesn't mean it's a negative
0: experience. It's just a more challenging one. That's why all the pop self-help on social media makes you crazy, right? Oh, I hate it. It's, 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 it's destructive because
1: what happens is people will go through and the best guys in the world say this nonsense. I've seen like, and I'm not going to name names, but the, the best in the personal development world, they demonize anxiety. They demonize fear. They demonize stress. And what happens is people hear it and they're like, Oh, that expert said I shouldn't feel anxiety. I should get out of my sadness. I should, you know, overcome this fear. I should eliminate stress. And then when they feel it, they feel like there's something wrong with them. Right. Like, oh, there's something wrong with me because that expert said I sh- that I should be fearless. Like uh, multiple examples of this. I was working with one guy and he said to me, I'm just waiting for the fear to go away. So I quit my job and start my business. And I said, that's your problem. You're waiting for the fear to go away. It's freaking scary to quit a job and start a business. You know, it's obviously scary.
0: Courage is not the lack of fear. Courage Absolutely. is action in the face of fear. Absolutely. Why don't we know this? Why? it's uh, Isn't this obvious?
1: It should be (laughs) like you can't have courage without fear. And I even see people framing courage and fear as opposites, which is nonsense because you can't have courage. Like it takes no courage to sit on a couch, right? It takes you have to have fear to have courage. So to experience courage, which I believe is the most important virtue, like C.S. Lewis says, courage is the most important virtue. Maya, Maya Angelou has this beautiful quote about how courage is the most valuable, I forget what it, how it goes, but she says that courage is the most valuable virtue, because with that virtue, you can essentially adopt any other virtues. Um, and courage is only exercised by experiencing fear, adversity, stress, all of it. So you need to go through those, go into those spaces to develop resilience, to develop grit, to develop courage.
0: Akshay? is it wrong for one man to love another man?
1: <laughs> not at all, brother.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and um, the bottom line is we create who we are in those, um, those moments of truth. Yeah. And those moments of truth can be on a chosen struggle, a worthy struggle. I've decided mm-hmm. to go run these crazy runs and do all this stuff <laughs> where I've decided I'm going to go defend my country, that this is not okay mm-hmm. with me. And I'm going to go, Fight these people and make take the fight to them, and not let the fight fight come to us. Uh, that's a chosen, worthy struggle. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes your phone rings, and um, you find out some horrible news, mm-hmm. and evil's breathing in your face, or somebody mm-hmm. you love is just uh, been diagnosed with some horrible disease, or mm-hmm. we lose a parent, or a friend, or a sibling. I mean, these things are going to happen to us, mm-hmm. all of us, and of course ultimately we all have to face our own death Mm -hmm. and so who will we create ourselves to be in these moments yeah are you going to be worthy if you're suffering
1: i'm not saying it's easy especially the ones that you don't choose those are far from easy like the chosen one you're kind of acknowledging that i'm seeking it right but the ones that you don't choose are far far from easy and and when you're in it you know it's, it's hard to sometimes uh recognize that there will be meaning in this uh but it's it's the meanings we create to our experiences that matter. I mean, that's why the book is called Victor Frankl's is called Man's Search for Meaning, because he talks about even in the hell of a concentration camp, he could find meaning in that suffering, you could find beauty in that hell. I mean I mean his is an extreme level which is unfathomable, right? To to find beauty in that kind of hell, which is just the most beautiful example of humanity at its finest. Uh, but yeah, I mean it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. But uh finding meaning in those in those dark times is it's everything. It gets you out of it. And, it, and when you lose people, like just remembering that line to me has been such a game changer that the dead depend on us for their redemption and their immortality. I love that. But to me, it's one of the most powerful lines about, yeah, it's so powerful. It's been a game changer for me when I think about everybody I've lost along the way.
0: What role, if any, does faith play for you in all of this?
1: Yeah, great question. Because faith has become a more recent uh, practice of mine. I personally don't believe in a higher power God. Uh, you know i uh, I think there's too much evil in the world to uh, to to believe that there's some sort of higher power controlling our fates. I believe in my own version of what God is that God is the essence of humanity at its finest like God is. Desmond Doss, which is the movie Hacksaw Ridge, single-handedly dragging 75 people off a cliff, sometimes pulling people as far as a football field. I mean, in training, marine training, we'd have to drag one body and it's brutally hard. He dragged 75 people, lowered them off a cliff in the middle of a firefight. Like what he did, and he was a skinny guy, what he did was impossible. What allows people to transcend themselves to that degree is accessing what I believe is God or the divine or the universe. So however you want to view it, right? So to me now, it's it's a muscle I'm building, but like that book was actually when bad things happen to good people because it's written by a rabbi Harold Kushner. That book was the like the trigger that got me into that book and that movie Hacksaw Rich, because Hacksaw in the movie he's a he's I mean true story about this guy Desmond Doss Medal of Honor recipient. He's a conscientious objector. He firm believer in God reads the Bible, carries it in war, and he doesn't believe in killing. So he goes out to the war as a medic. But that movie and that book were the triggers for me to experience faith. I mean to practice faith and viewing viewing that there's something there is something mystical in the world right that we can't explain when certain things happen how that guy pulls out like there's something magical that's beyond rash, reason and rationality i mean as a practical example like in the darkness for example in the seven day darkness i went through moments that were that i can't explain with reason and rationality like one day i think it was day 5 of darkness it got so blindingly bright that i felt like i needed an eye mask to sleep i was literally like touching my eyelids to to see if they're open or closed it was blindingly bright I mean that's something I don't I can't explain through reason or rationality it transcends all of that and so I've been practicing faith more to balance this duality of the mystical and the practical you know this i talk a lot about the dualities like darkness and light mystical and practical and i believe this is like the essence this, this it's a concept i call singular duality that there's all these dualities in life right like life and death ego and humility contentment and discontentment suffering and play all kinds of dualities and it's the unification of these dualities that i believe is the essence of spiritual awakenings to spiritual enlightenment realizing that because in the world we demonize one side of the duality right like ego for example is framed as something bad Ego is not bad. We need ego. If you want, if you want to be great, you have to believe you're great. I mean, the greatest athletes in the world are the best example of this. You know, Tom Brady when he when he got selected for the Patriots was like, "I'm the best decision this organization's ever made." Muhammad Ali used to be like, "I'm, sh- I'm going to show you how great I am." You know, so ego is not bad. Ego is not the enemy. Ego can coexist with Muhammad people. Ali. In press conferences, would spend half the press conference saying, I'm the, "I'm the greatest." Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I mean, because ego is necessary. If you want to be great, you have to believe it. Ego is not the enemy, but you see that nonsense all the time, right? So people think we need to eliminate the ego. So the idea is that there's all these dualities in life. I actually have a series of dualities I keep writing down as they come to me. And this other one of practical and mystical, you know, is one that when you, when you recognize that there's unification of duality, like in the darkness, I experienced at such a visceral level, seeing bright, blindingly bright light in the dark room, was truly an experience, in, like not just an experience, but a knowingness that darkness and light can coexist as one. And of course, I don't mean that literally. I mean that figuratively in the human experience as well. I don't just mean that literally. But you and actually I, experienced it literally. I experienced it literally, and that, that was the beauty. That was the profundity of the experience that I got to literally experience something that is truly what I've like I believe this, this idea that it created, and I'm not saying it in a sort of egotistical way in this case, although ego is not bad, but, <laughs> but that the singular duality idea is the most important spiritual idea because it's the, it's the unification of all dualities, recognizing that there is a oneness in, the, in these dualities that is the true spiritual awakening. And sometimes it's hard to get it. I'm not saying I, I have a knowingness of it all the time, but when I have these visceral no- experiences, the darkness was one experience, I have other experiences like that, of knowing that these ex- coexist. That is this realization that we are at a higher level, like one, you know, and uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's humbling. It's, it's powerful.
0: It's everything. (laughs) That is very, very powerful. And, and I appreciate your perspective on it. Um, I also want to circle back to, uh, I thought I heard you say something to the effect of, you know, God is a puppet master. And then uh, sort of that, how could, if there was a God in that sense, how mm-hmm. could evil exist? Did I hear you say that right? Yeah. So um, I have a book for you. Yeah. It's written by uh, a, a pastor named Timothy Keller. Okay. And it's been, ha ha, a godsend to me, um, sent by my friend Eddie Yoon. And the book is called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. That sounds beautiful. And in the book... He It is essentially his synthesis mm. of the teachings of the Bible around pain and suffering. And one of the things he digs into is evil. And mm. he makes an argument, uh, Akshay, that is interesting, which is mm. the presence of evil, it, as described in the Bible, is proof of the existence of God. Mm-hmm. And essentially, and look, this is my interpretation. I am far from a biblical scholar, but my mm-hmm. interpretation of Keller, of Keller's words is essentially, what God gives is freedom of choice. And when there's mm-hmm. freedom of choice, there's the choice moment by moment, to do what's right mm-hmm. and to do what's mm-hmm. wrong. And we all choose every day, moment by moment. That's my mm-hmm. synthesis of Keller. Mm-hmm. But here's what I'm willing to do. I would love to send you a copy of this book because I have found it to be an extraordinary uh, and, and even even for people who aren't Christian, if you believe in some kind of higher power, I think yeah. um, this book yeah. is extraordinary, particularly if you're dealing if if you're walking through any kind of fire.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'd be honored and would love to check it out because I do. I, you know, I actually studied philosophy or religion when I was undergrad, so it fascinates me uh, uh the our relationship to God and the divine. I would love to check it out. I'd be honored to, to read that if you send me a copy too. But, uh, well, I would love evening. to buy it for you. I want to buy. <laughs> I know you can pay <laughs> for your own, but I want to send <laughs> you thank one. You. That, would be, that would, sounds great. That sounds great. I appreciate it. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. So please do. And I mean, even in, when bad things happen to good people, because it's written by a rabbi, right? Harold Kushner, he says that his argument is that randomness does happen in the world, which is sometimes hard. I think people don't like people feel like everything happens for a reason. I'm not a big believer in that that way of thinking. Like he talks about, like you know, why does it? One person could step off the curb, and if he stepped off a second later or a second earlier, he'd be alive. Something like that, you know. So randomness happens in the world. But one thing he says, which again, this is my perspective on God, is in somewhat agreement of of how he views it in that book. He says that one of the quotes he says is. To me, the surest proof on the existence of God is that when someone prays for faith, someone prays for strength and courage. They, they something along those lines. I'm misquoting it, but when he says that, so when someone prays for strength, hope, and courage, they get more strength, hope, and courage than they would have had had they not prayed. So it's the idea that, you know, that atheism, there's no atheists in foxholes, like they say, right?
0: So well, is I mean, that God. true? You've been, if not in foxholes, the, the equivalent <laughs> thereof, heard. I mean, as you're sniffing around for bombs, <laughs> are you talking to God or, or, or the great spirit or Fred or whatever you want to call it? Whatever you want to call it. I
1: do now. I mean, I've had moments like that, you know, where you're sort of just praying to God for something. Uh, and that's why I also don't think like, I don't think, but I think, I think God is not, and he talks about this in the book too, but I don't think God is someone to bargain with, you know, like people say like, God, give me this and then I'll, I'll do this. You know, it's not like a bartering system. So I, I don't think God is asking about asking for stuff. I think to me, God is accessing, praying to God is accessing resources within. And he talks, and again, this is a lot of my experience of God and relationship to faith has been developed by reading that book. But he talks about how that God is not about asking for stuff. It's about praying to tap into greater resources within ourselves that we would not have without the access of God. So God is, for example, you know, Desmond Doss dragging 75 people off a cliff. God is a single mom working three jobs somehow to take care of her kids. God is a community coming together to to work through a hurricane or an earthquake. You know, God is the experience of, like, to me, God is an experience of true human self-transcendence at its finest. Like, when we see self-transcendence at its finest, that's the experience of God. And to when I pray today, I am praying to develop the strength, the hope, the courage, the resilience to transcend myself when things go, things get hard, and they do. <laughs> um, to develop the, to give me the, the, these, like even in his other book, or why, like why like Raul Kushner's other book, I think it's called um, Why We Need God or something like that. He says that the power of faith is that it taps into a limitless pool that we don't have without God. Like, like he says, he sort of compares the person who doesn't believe in God versus the person who does. And he said that when we believe in God, we're tapping into a limitless pool that can have us sort of achieve the impossible. Now, I'm kind of putting it in my own words, but there's something beautiful about how he put it that really, I think that's what it is. When I pray, it's that like tapping into that same spirit that allows some guy to pull 75 people off a cliff, and saying, and I know we all have that. We all have that divinity within us, and and I'm praying to access that. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, very very pow- powerful. And I, I think people who pray, many of them, let me let me say it that way, are praying to access something. Yeah. That will take them beyond what they currently feel they can achieve. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think because yeah, I so, think so when
0: Janis Joplin sings, uh, "Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz?" That's, pr- <laughs> that's probably not what we should be doing, although it is a great song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. My thoughts on bartering with God. <laughs> yeah. Now, actually, is there anything else
1: you would like to touch on? You know, one one thing that maybe will help, because uh, it's a concept that people have said they kind of got the most value out of in, in my book *Fearvana* is something that I call second dart syndrome." So maybe just sharing this in terms of how we navigate the experience yeah. of human stuff, how we navigate the experience of human suffering. Um, so Buddha has said that we all start stabbed by the two darts of suffering. The first dart is the one we don't control, and neuroscience has validated like we don't control what most what first shows up in our brain. So if somebody runs into this room with the gun right now. I'm not choosing to feel fear; my brain's going to feel it. Most of what's happening in our brain is in the subconscious, right? So in the same context, in a spiritual context, he says it's the two darts of suffering. So the first dart, for example, let's say I stub my toe against a door. The first dart is the pain in my toe. The second dart is when I start saying things like this door stupid. God hates me. Why do bad things only happen to me? And I go into the self-talk about myself, about the environment, about the world. And this, and, and why this is so valuable, I call this is because when we navigate our emotions, we often don't allow ourselves to feel it because one, the world demonizes emotions. And we, we hear this all the time, right? You'll say, people, people will say, don't worry. Don't be stressed. Don't be scared. Don't feel sad. We always say, don't feel what you're feeling instead of, uh, instead of allowing ourselves to feel what we feel. And what happens is- The other one, I hate to interrupt you. No, please. Anger.
0: Yeah. Don't be angry. Anger (laughs) is my happy place. It's the place I go. Uh, I've been experiencing anger in a way that I couldn't even imagine at a whole other level. And for so many people, anger is inappropriate. They don't want to hear it. It makes them uncomfortable. It's like, look, we've got to talk about when we have ferocious anger. Absolutely. There's beauty to rage. You got to, you got to, you got to tap into anger,
1: tap into rage. I mean, uh, football players are a good example of this. They often do, you know, because in some cases, anger is fuel and you got to use it. And I, you know, consciously engaging emotions at will is actually one of the most powerful skills to be able to access any emotion at will. I use Say that again, consciously. Sure consciously engaging emotions at will, like consciously training yourself to step into any emotion you, you choose. So for example, I, have, I use music and movie scenes as triggers to do that. I have music, music that can get me happy, sad, angry, guilty, intense, you name it. Like using music as a trigger. And like one thing I actually do to this day is I consciously watch scenes from
0: war movies knowing they will make me cry. You know, the first time my dad and I watched Braveheart together, yeah. we were up in Tahoe. And of course, when you're going to watch Braveheart with your dad in Tahoe, you drink whiskey. And about halfway through the movie, we almost invaded Reno. <laughs> I love it. Right, love It's like that. But a song can oh, make yeah. you feel that way or a movie. Absolutely. Can, right? Absolutely. It can put you into state. So train
1: yourself to be in those emotions, like to 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 uh, because instead of letting the emotion control you when you consciously train that emotion then you control it and you can master the experience of how you choose to be in that emotion as it shows up uh, and that kind of comes back to the second art syndrome is that look we're not going to control most of what we feel but the second art the second art spiral is you know what happens is like and his example, I took my ex my rock climbing once and she felt really scared on this little climb and I didn't feel scared. So we got back down and she was kind of beating herself up. Why was I scared? I'm weak. How will I do this? How will I do this? What's wrong with me? All this kind of stuff. And we, we all do this, right? We go down the this self, the this, this spiral of conversation and our self talk. And the problem was not her fear. I mean, I, the only reason I didn't feel fear was not because I was braver than her, it was because I had been on much harder rock climbs, and this was my brain didn't perceive it as an experience of risk. I had references to say, "This is not scary. This is not risky." My brain was like, "All right, you're, you're good here." You know, like to me, it was safe. She hadn't, so it showed up fear. Like that's normal. We all have different experiences, but the problem is, then we beat ourselves up. And noticing these second darts is one of the most uh, helpful things you can do to help. Help yourself not go down the spiral. Like if you're feeling what you feel, like I've, I've helped people, like a veteran with anger issues. Same thing by by noticing the second dart. Because I mean, he like for example, this veteran, he went to a therapist there and there, i said therapist was saying, anger is just a choice. Just choose to stop feeling angry. What happened was he started going down this second dart syndrome spiral. If anger is just a choice, what's wrong with me? Why am I still feeling angry? You know, I should not. And why aren't people going to this, this talk, right? But the problem was anger was no longer a choice. His brain had cultivated a pattern as a result of whatever, you know, genetics, experiences of war, all these things cultivated a pattern. It had been seven years. Now this became a normal response. So what I helped him do is pause to just notice, accept, be with the first start of anger and then recognize second art conversation. So the goal, whenever somebody comes to me, whether they're anxiety, anger, whatever it may be, whatever the challenging emotion it's, I'd never talk about getting rid of it first is just being with it, noticing it, accepting it, like, like building a better relationship to it. And then allowing yourself to not go into that second art spiral of what's wrong with me. You know, why am I feeling this, this, that, and the other thing? We all know our self dialogue, right? And, and no, and I call again, I call it second dart syndrome. Navigating that has been, people like have said that's one of the most valuable concepts that they've gotten from my book. If you want to share it, so that, uh, just yeah, notice the second darts and allow yourself and accept what
0: you feel. It's okay. Like it also, it reminds me of Frankel. I think he says, I'm paraphrasing, when you can't change the situation, right? You can't yeah. change the situation. You have to change you. The only thing we challenge to do is change ourselves. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, and the same
1: thing applies not just to external situations, but even our internal stimuli in response to that. Because again, we don't control what most shows, first shows up in our brain. There's been tons of neuroscience studies that have shown they can, they, can, like, they can see activation in your brain before a person's sort of consciously aware of, let's say, picking up a glass of water and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, like, like again, this person shows up in the room right now with a gun. I feel fear. I'm not choosing to feel it. The, the second dark, that changing, the controlling of the attitude is what I do once it shows up. That's everything. That's space. Viktor Frankl, he says, one of the most profound quotes, in my opinion, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our power to choose our response, and in our response lies our growth and our freedom. What we do in that space between stimulus and response will shape our destiny. That space is everything.
0: Do I have permission to say exactly what's on my mind to you? Please do, sir. <laughs> I fucking love you. You're incredible. You are incredible. You're, you're a gift to fucking humanity. And man, oh man, you have come along at the exact right time in my life. You are a goddamn gift and an angel and a fucking, you're incredible. Thank you. Thank you, brother. That means a lot coming from you. It really does. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. Thank you. And uh, I have one other question if I could. Please. Yeah. It's very clear you're on a mission. You talked about it earlier about how, sure, maybe you could go and volunteer for an NGO mm-hmm. and make some kind of a difference. And, and you're the kind of guy who would be incredibly valuable to, I don't know, Doctors Without Borders or whoever. Mm-hmm. But you said you decided that um, as valuable as that could be, and, and in many ways, the experience, that's the experience you want to have. You've decided mm-hmm. to write this book and you've decided to sort of I would just call you an evangelist, you know for for suffering and the power of suffering and what it means to become to transcend that, right? Mm-hmm. That's how I see you anyway. Yeah, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. so i'm I'm curious about that decision and and why this mission, given there's so many things you could do.
1: Uh, you know, so the, to, so the mission is because, again, for one, everybody's in pain in some way. And I think it's the most like it's coming back. It's the most important skill that's nobody's ta- that nobody's talking about. Everybody's demonizing suffering. Everybody's demonizing fear. Everybody's demonizing anxiety. And it's giving it's putting people in more pain of the second dart syndrome, the second darts of suffering. Those are the true suffering. And and helping people reframe that is, I mean, because like, partly, I mean, I've seen so much pain and suffering within myself and in the external world. And that stuff stays with you, you know. I mean, I go through low moments to this day. As I said, darkness hits, and when I get messages from readers that how much their book, like my book, changed their life, that's that's everything. I mean, I, I I can't see what could be more. Like I believe, like if there's one core value that defines me, it's self-transcendence. I think self-transcendence again is the access point to self-actualization, right? And transcending the self in service of the mission. So when I transcend myself in service of this, that's 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 what it's about. I think I do believe that we are all part of one big human family, and not just in some woo-woo way, but in a deep, deep way that we're connected, like we're, we're part of this greater experience on, on this planet together. And, and like the Dalai Lama says, you know, that uh, if the suffering of one man is a suffering of all of humanity, and I believe that. And so when I see my human family suffering, I feel like it's on me to do something. It. Like, my, I have a mission statement for not just fear of honor my brand, but my my for me personally, and that is to inspire, empower and train my human family to transcend suffering, so that they can live their personal legend and experience boundless bliss. That's my mission statement, you know, so that's what I do to inspire, empower and train my human family to transcend suffering. And I think that's you do that. And I mean, that's the, cause I, I also think just if we look at human beings, like collectively, what are we doing? We're trying to go further. We're trying to go faster. We're trying to live longer, but are we actually improving the quality of our lives? And are, you know, like statistically we're not, we're only getting worse on a global scale. So what's the point of trying to live longer, go further, go faster. And all these things that we're doing trying to make our, I mean, most, most things we're doing, which we're, tr- we're constantly trying to make our lives easier. I mean, I see shit that like, like there's this bag, like these bags now that have like Bluetooth following because heaven forbid, I can't pull my own bag. I mean, I know that's a silly example, but the point is we're constantly
0: trying to make our lives easier, but easier is not better. It's like around here, something that's gotten very popular are these uh, e-bikes. And it's like now you can ride a bike and you don't even have to pedal. You can, you <laughs> can, you can ride across Santa Cruz and not even break a sweat. Now, look, I've ridden them. They're fun (laughs) as shit. They really are. It's like a mix of a motorcycle and a bike. They're fun. And, and, you know, my wife says, oh, we should get some of these. We have a buddy who has a couple. I'm like, no, no fucking way. (laughs) Because this is all we're going to do. And we're just going to get fatter and lazier (laughs) and dumber. And like. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And that's what we're doing. Like, I mean, I mean, I get these things are fun, but like, we're just constantly trying to make our lives easier and easier is only making our lives worse. If you seek out, I like to say, you know, if you seek out easy, your life's going to be hard. If you seek out hard, your life will be easy. So oh, hold on, and hold on, to- handsome. Say that <laughs> one again for me nice and slow. Yeah. If you seek out easy, your life will be hard. And if you seek out hard, your life will be easy. So I mean, and when I say hard, it's a worthy hard, right? Like I like to say that sort of the paradox of happiness is that the pursuit of happiness leads to greater struggle but the pursuit of a worthy struggle leads to ha- happiness as a side effect. I call it the paradox of happiness. Uh, It's something I do talks about that. Yeah. Is that the pursuit of happiness leads to greater struggle, but it's the pursuit of a worthy struggle that leads to happiness as a side effect.
0: You're fucking awesome. (laughs) I mean, you are incredible. Um, And and, 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 uh, uh, I'll just say it wise beyond your years. Like you speak like you're a, you know, a hundred and three year old monk (laughs) or yogi or pick whatever, you know, (laughs) Rabbi, like whatever.
1: Like, <laughs> My friends do tell me I'm like an old person in a younger person's body.
0: <laughs> you absolutely are in the coolest way, yeah, yeah, in a body that you're like shredding the shit out of.
1: <laughs> yeah, destroying exactly.
0: <laughs> hey, be careful! I just found out that I need meniscus surgery. <laughs> oh, no. So, it catches up with you, brother.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, like that. All right, anything else before we wrap?
1: just yeah just uh you know suffer well that's everything suffer well
0: (laughs) thank you man i really do appreciate it stay legendary my friend well there he is the incredible akshay nanavati uh what an extraordinary and incredibly inspiring uh inspiring individual and i'm so glad that um he came on and did this and uh i'm also so glad that he and i have got to uh know each other and uh, are doing a few things together now. It's great having him in my life. And if you would like to share him with somebody in your life, why not share it with somebody? I want to share this episode with somebody right now. Uh, we deeply, deeply appreciate it when you share this podcast with your friends and family. Also want to share with you that our next episode is with bestselling author Courtney Carver. And she's got an incredible new book out. Um, it's brand new. It's called Project 333 or 333, The Minimalist Fashion Challenge. And we talk about uh, the power of simplifying things and in particular, simplifying, simplifying, simplifying. <laughs> that's when you really fly and you're simple. Simplify uh, your life and your wardrobe. It's a very different conversation for this podcast, but hey, that's what we're all about. At Courtney's an amazing gal and I think you're gonna love it. So hit subscribe on your favorite um, uh, podcast player. So you don't miss our next episode with Courtney Carver. All right. We would like to thank the absolutely legendary Akshay Nanavati. Thank you, Akshay. Uh, Please check out his book, Fear Vana, the revolutionary science of how to turn fear into health, wealth, and happiness. That's Fear Vana, wherever you get legendary books. The amazing folks at org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Uh, the number one, org. Also, if you're in marketing or you're an entrepreneur or you're interested in growth, why not check out Lockhead on Marketing? It's uh, It's our marketing podcast. It's short, focused episodes on key strategies and mindsets in marketing. My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants want to help you scale yourself. Why not leverage the power of a virtual assistant to get more done? Visit bottleneck.online. That's bottleneck.online. And uh, growwire.com, it's what legendary entrepreneurs and growth-oriented people are reading on the internet. Visit growwire.com. And if you're somebody who's looking to start your career or reboot your career, check out crash.co slash different. And while you're there, you'll be able to get a sneak preview of the hot new handbook, Crash Your Career. That's crash.co slash different. And um, are you in the B2B space in Silicon Valley? If you are, visit my friends at Atre.net today. Atre.net has been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. And the incredible folks at the Front Row Foundation deliver amazing experiences to people facing the potential of the end of their life and having been involved with these folks uh, i'll tell you it is an incredibly moving thing if you want to make a difference, visit frontrowfoundation.org. All right. I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Um, this podcast is produced and edited by living podcast legend, Jason DeFilippo, Saranox and Jamie J, technical execution and uh, legendary web and all sorts of <laughs> other miracles. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Please tell two people you love about two podcasts you love listen to leonard cohen only buy pasture raised free range eggs because chickens are people too thank you candy dandy i love your mom and dad and hey colin this odd cast really ties the room together doesn't it today our deepest apologies go to marcus rust ceo of Roseacre farms sorry marky we just ran out of time for you that's it thank you so much i deeply appreciate you investing part of your life with us stay legendary and until we're together again follow your different